6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, In the Promised Land. There's another little quaint thing that deserves comment, and that's the daughters of Zelophehad. When Moses was establishing the laws of inheritance, a guy by the name of Zelophehad came to Moses and said, I got a problem. I only have five daughters, no sons. How are they going to inherit? Moses does the right thing. He goes to the Lord. The Lord tells, says, make an exception. So there's an exception written in the Torah for the daughters of Zelophehad. If a man has no sons and the daughters marry within the tribe, the inheritance will flow through to her husband. You follow me? That's what it basically says. It was requested by Moses in Numbers 27. And when you get to the land, and Joshua's laying out the land here, these five daughters come and say, by the way, check the records, read the fine print. We got an exception. Joshua does. He's sure enough, you do. And that's in Joshua 17. What most people who read this don't understand is how this worked. What happened was, if he had no sons, when the daughters married, the father of the bride adopted the husband as his son by adoption. And you'll find that in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 and a number of other places. It's amazing how you can go through most commentators, and I can find any that really understand. They say this is just a quaint tribal custom. They don't, they don't attach any significance to this uh, theologically. Every detail in the Bible is there by deliberate design. That's my challenge to you. Check it out. It turns out the claims of Christ hang on this. This anticipates the lineage of Christ. Because there's a blood curse on the line of Joseph, but Jesus is not a son of Joseph. He's just a legal father of Jesus. That's why you have a virgin birth. He's born of Mary. Mary's father was Heli. She had no brothers. When Mary marries Joseph, Heli adopts Joseph as his son. Matthew, Matthew has the Jewish line from Abraham down through Joseph to Christ. Luke, being a doctor and interested in his humanity, starts at Adam, goes all the way from from Adam to Abraham. From Abraham to David, they're identical. But at David, Luke takes a left turn and goes through a second surviving son of Bathsheba, not the first one, which was Solomon, and down through Mary. So the point is, Jesus is of the house and lineage of David, but those are two different lines. So we'll get into that when we get to the book of Luke. But all this hangs on the daughters of Zelophehad, this quaint little strange thing in the Torah. All these little rules you find, one way or another, will point to Jesus Christ. The book of Judges follows, and this is a very dismal book. The 450 years following the conquest, the next generation blow it again and again and again. They don't follow through. There are 400-year segments of, of uh, the nation's history. Death of Joseph to Exodus, about 400 years. Exodus to the monarchy is about 400 years. So these are just horseback kind of numbers. And from the monarchy to the exile is also about 400 years. So these are just a rough feeling for the things. But the book of Judges is a record of occasional deliverers rather than a succession of governors. It was probably written by Samuel before the accession of David. And the whole pattern in Judges is dismal. They sin, 
and they get oppressed by their, their, the indigenous tribes, and then they, they repent, and a deliverer comes and gives them some relief, but then they fall right back into it. The recurring phrase in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That doesn't sound too insidious on its own. You need to realize where it, where it stands. It's a scathing indictment. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is value relativism. And it led to chaos. The only person that decides what's right and wrong is God. And you're right or wrong if you're conformed to God's rules or you're not. That's really the repeated refrain all the way through the book of Judges. This is the cost of compromise. See, another generation arose. And they were unwilling to help the rest. They were living among idolaters and they became contaminated with the idolatry. God had told them to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes because there were Nephilim among them. And they didn't do that. They made peace with them. And if you study the book of Judges, you'll discover their failures are up on the Golan Heights, up at Bashan. They're also in the core middle area. And they're also down on the Gaza Strip. And when you, look, when you do it, study it by a, a geographic, you'll see it's exactly the same thing today. Those places where they didn't deal with it back then, they're now suffering for it. And uh, interesting. Demons are territorial. I'm just summarizing the, the, the whole ju judge's thing. The surrounding nations exploited their degeneracy. They had incomplete mastery. They made in, inappropriate military alliances. They intermarried with these uh, pagan groups. And they had, that led to apostasy and idolatry. God occasionally intervenes. And they interrupted their sordid slide into failure. That book of Judges is a grim one. A lot of lessons. There are six servitudes. These are not accidents. They're brought about by God as punishments. And the privileges are not a, license, privileges are not a license to sin. And there's a pattern all through the book of Judges. They sin, they suffer, they repent, and then they're delivered. And they started well, but they finished dismally. They were without a king. God was supposed to be their king. But everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What you also notice is the degradation of the role of woman. Deborah is a military commander early in the book. Jephthah gets set aside for some silly reasons. And then the concubine gets raped and killed in, the, in that dismal thing near the end. A, there are six servitudes. Um, the book of, the, uh, in the book of Judges, Mesopotamia, there was a liver of Athaniel. Then the Moabites had a, a place for time. Ehud delivers them. Then the Kenites and Deborah uh, delivers them from them. Midianites, and you have the famous Gideon thing. Jephthah and the Ammonites, the Philistines. There's six of these. They add up to 111 years out of the total calendar time in which they are in servitude. I'm going to come back to that later. That's what, in a summary, I'll show you. It turns out that the history of Israel is always in 490-year segments. From Abraham to the Exodus is a period of time. The promise was 75 years before we have Isaac and all that. And we get to the Exodus. So you got a total of 505 years. But of those years, 15 years, Ishmael was the usurper. When you subtract the 15 from 505, you get 490. Okay, well, so what? Well, Exodus to Temple turns out to be 601 years. 594 from 1 Kings 6 on and then completed in 1 Kings 6, verse 38. So you got seven there. So anyway, you got the net of it. You got 601 years there. But you've got these servitudes between Exodus and the Temple. Put them all in here. There's 111 of those. So again, you got 490 years. You're going to discover later that Israel is always 490 years if you subtract the time that they are out of the land. We're in that parenthesis before the final seven years to make up the final 490. So we'll get to that later. There's a sordid chapter 
and it ends the book of Judges. The Levite and his concubine. There's this Levite. He happens to be geographically in the tribe of Benjamin. But he travels. He's traveling to repair his marriage. He's unable to find safe lodging. So he's out on the street at night. His concubine is raped and left for dead. In fact, left dead. He's so upset, he cuts her in 12 parts and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of, are absolutely shocked at the Benjamites. So the outraged tribes, it becomes a big cause celeb, and they attack the Benjamites, only to wake up to the reality they almost eliminate the tribe of Benjamin. The pendulum swings the other way. They all pitch in. There's only 600 left of the Benjamites. So they all pitch in to get brides for the remaining Benjamites to save this endurance of the tribe of Benjamin. And so all the tribes assist in getting brides for these 600. So strange, strange, but it's a, if nothing else, describes the, the sad state of affairs in Israel. But uh, not, let's not leave it there. Let's have our dessert and get into the book of Ruth. Little book, the romance of redemption. It opens up in the days where the judges rule. So this is not period. It's the ultimate love story that emerges, emerges out of this mess. At the literary level, it is widely venerated in colleges, just as an element of literature, apart from the biblical implications. At the prophetic and personal level, it's an incredible gem. It has prophecy in it, and it also has personal implications for each of us. Strangely enough, even though it's in the Old Testament, and the church is not visible in the Old Testament, this is one of the most significant books of the Old Testament regarding the church, and I'll show you why. One of the things it includes as part of the story is the role of this strange thing that in Hebrew they call the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. What is he? What does he do? What's that all about? And I'm going to suggest to you that this book is an essential prerequisite before you study Revelation chapter 5. You won't understand what's going on unless you really understand the book of Ruth. A little background. In the genealogies of the Bible, the 10th man is always significant. From Adam to Noah, we talked about that before. From Shem to Abraham is obviously significant. From Isaac to Boaz, he turns out to be the 10th uh, again. And so he turns out to be a very significant guy. He's going to be a type or a foreshadowing in a sense of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Ruth, first chapter is about love's resolve, where Ruth cleaves to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Second chapter is love's response, where she then gleans on behalf of her mother-in-law because they're destitute there in Bethlehem. And then we have love's request. Out of this comes an opportunity. And there's this very misunderstood scene in the thrashing floor we'll, we'll get to. And then there's a climactic scene which has some surprises for everyone in chapter 4. The redemption of both the land and the bride, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Chapter 1. The famine, there's famine in Bethlehem, so Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, Malan and Kilian, go to Moab because things are better there. And in Moab, these two sons take up Moabite daughters as, as wives. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow, and her two sons also die. Rather weird names, unhealthy and puny, apparently, is what the names mean. It speaks for itself, I guess. Naomi's name means pleasant, and I'm going to suggest it means pleasant land, because she's going to turn out to be, in a sense, a type of Israel. But she's in Moab, she's in exile, and she's destitute. But ten years have gone by, she now hears things are better in, in, back at home in Bethlehem. So she's going to go back home. And her two daughters-in-law want to go with her. That tells you a lot about Naomi. The two daughters-in-law would want to stick it out with her. She talks him out of it. And one of them, Orpah, ultimately does return to her own people. But Ruth refuses. She's obstinate. 
and she decides to stay with her mother-in-law, and her testimony is worth quoting. Ruth said to, me, uh, to Naomi, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What a statement. And Naomi realizes she's resolute, so she yields and, and she goes back. So they go back to Bethlehem. You have to learn, uh, one of the reasons the books of value, you have to learn some laws. One of those is the law of gleaning. The rules were that if you had a piece of land, your reapers could go through once and only once. What they missed was left for the widows and orphans and destitute. That was called the law of gleaning. You'd go through once, but you weren't allowed to go back and skim it. That, that was what you inherently would miss belonged to the destitute. That's in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, several places. So Naomi and uh, Ruth are destitute. They're back in the land, but trying to make it. And so Ruth, being uh, younger, goes to glean. And she happens upon the field of Boaz. I love that word, happens. Uh, you know what the rabbis say? They say coincidence is not a kosher word. Or the way we see it, there's no accidents in God's kingdom. It turns out she happens on the one field that's going to change the destiny of the world. Boaz, by the way, means in him is strength. And it's a very interesting name because one of the two pillars in the temple are named Boaz for some significant reasons. We'll get there later. He's introduced to uh, Ruth by an unnamed servant. And I'm fascinated. Now, we're going to discover, of course, Boaz in the t is in the role of the Lord of the Harvest. Ruth, of course, will end up becoming his Gentile bride. The unnamed servant is the one that introduces her to Boaz. And the Holy Spirit always is an unnamed servant. We went through that in Genesis, you may recall. Here it happens again. Jesus says, explains why. The Holy Spirit will never testify of himself. And when Boaz finds out that Ruth is there, he tells her, if don't be in any other field, stay here. And I've, he instructs his young men not to touch her. And also to drop handfuls on purpose. <laughs> in other words, to make sure there's plenty they miss that she can glean for, for herself and her mother-in-law. And so you begin to see there's uh, something going on here. Boaz will be, turn out to be the role of a goel. That's a Hebrew term meaning the kinsman redeemer. And he has some interesting, uh, you have to, to, do, to get into this, you have to understand the law of redemption. Also the law of Leverite marriage. The two other laws you need. The law of redemption was that if a person had to sell his land, that is lease it in effect because he was destitute, the next of kin could come and redeem the land for the family if he chose to. But he had to be able, he had to be willing, and he had to be able to take, he had to take all the obligations of the, the lost guy to do that. So it was a, an optional responsibility, so to speak, of uh, the law of redemption. The law of Leverite marriage is the one we talked about. That's where a guy, if a guy dies, his brother is supposed to take, if he can, take the woman to raise up seed for the, the, the dead brother. Anyway, so in, in chapter 2, by the way, when Ruth comes home with all this stuff, Naomi smells a fish here. What's going on? And she, when she finds out that Naomi's been in Boaz's land, she re Naomi realizes that Boaz is a kinsman. And she realizes here's an opportunity, not just for herself, but also for her daughter, who's been so faithful. And so she says, do it exactly as I instruct you. And you get to chapter, this all sets the stage for chapter 3, the famous thrashing floor scene. So see, Naomi recognized the opportunity for the redemption of her land that she wants, but also for a whole new life for Ruth. So she instructs Ruth on what to do. So in accordance with those instructions, Ruth approaches Boaz to fulfill the role of the Goel, 
The thrashing floor takes place on a saddleback where there's a wind all the time. And what you did at the end of the day, you took the grain that had been harvested and you threw it up into the wind, and the, the good stuff, the heavy stuff, would fall in a pile downwind a little bit. The, the light stuff, the stuff you don't want, would fall further downwind. If you did this right, you ended up with two piles. The one closer in you'd bag for market, and the one further down you'd burn to keep away vermin and so forth. But all this was done in the atmosphere of a carnival uh, a feast in the evening. So when, after the partying and, the, and all that, they um, would sleep. But the owner of the material would sleep by the, and, and probably his key guys, would sleep by the grain so it wouldn't be stolen. And so it was an overnight slumber party kind of thing. What um, Naomi tells Ruth to do, watch where he sleeps, and when it's all quiet, you go and sleep at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. And so he does, in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and here's Ruth, and he's shook. When people read that, it sounds like she is propositioning him sexually. No, it's worse than that. She's asking him to do his kinsman's part. Spread your skirt over me, is the expression. You need to understand the culture. Hems were where the badge of authority resided. We think of, of authority as stripes on a sleeve or on a shoulder. In ancient Israel, it was on the border of your garment. That's when David cuts the hem of Saul's garment. He's cutting his genealogy away. Uh, the hem, when the woman, uh, issue of blood, if she can touch the hem of Christ, her mind is, that's where his authority is. See, the hem's where the authority. When God speaks in Isaiah, God speaks of, of Israel, putting his skirt over Israel, putting his authority and protection over her. She asks him to put his skirt over her. People misunderstand that without the background. What she's asking him to do is marry her to raise up seed, because he's a kinsman. And he says, and he's flattered. He's flattered and she does it. But unfortunately, there is someone, clo a closer kinsman, that he has to clear the way for first. And so she, she, wants, she wants him to fulfill the role of a goel. But there's a nearer kinsman in the way. And when you get through the story, see, by now you've got this love story going and she wants to be married. And when he says there's a nearer kinsman, you know, that's, that's a cloud. That's your plot problem. What's going to happen here? We'll get to that. And what he, what he does do, he gives her six measures of, of meal barley, to take back to Naomi. You and I miss that, but Naomi, when she gets back, Naomi recognizes what that means. She says, that means he won't rest until this is resolved. See, the six days God worked and the seventh he rested, it's a code that Naomi picks up and understands when she gets home. So that leads to chapter four, the big deal. Boaz confronts this guy that's the nearer kinsman. Naomi has a property uh, land and, he, and uh, looking for someone to redeem it. He's all redeem it. See, at this point, by the way, if you get in the real picture here, you've got a picture, you know, um, Boaz is sort of a Charlton Heston or a Harrison Ford kind of guy. The nearer kinsman is probably, what, Danny DeVita or something, see? Um, and he said, I'm willing to do it. Boaz says, wait a minute, uh, whoever takes that has to take all the obligation, you'd have to take Ruth as a bride. Well, he can't do that because it'll mar his own inheritance, so he passes. And he passes by giving, the symbol of his passing is to give, take a shoe and give it to Boaz. And of course, to him it's a disgrace, but to Boaz it's a marriage license, see? Because Boaz now, the road is clear for him to take Ruth as a bride. And so the, the guy yields his shoe to re relieve the obligation. Boaz steps up. He purchases the land for Naomi, and he purchases, that's the word used, Ruth as a bride, a Gentile bride. She's a Moabitess, right? Do you, see, do you see the symbolism starting to unfold here? You haven't seen the half of it. Okay. At the big celebration where Ruth and, and uh, Boaz are being married, somebody says, may your house be like Perez. Now, if you don't know your story, it sounds like a toast. Isn't that great? 
But if you've read Genesis 38, you know what a sordid thing the birth of Perez was. That's where Tamar gets Judah to, not realizing it, have incest with her, to have a child. Remember that whole thing. Perez is the illegitimate son of Tamar. Here's they may your house be like Perez. You, if that, someone said that to you, you'd say, same to you, fella, you know. No, it's actually a strange prophecy buried in Ruth here. Let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed of which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. You need to know in Deuteronomy 23, it says, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter to the Lord. In other words, it takes generation, ten generations to purge the illegitimacy, if you will. Well, if you go through here and you see Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Solomon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. You've got ten generations. In fact, you may recall that Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David were encrypted in Genesis 38 behind the text. We looked at that then. But we have here the tenth generation after Perez is David. So here we have a prophecy in the book of Ruth. This is in the time of Judges of David being the king. Second time this comes up. It came up in Genesis 38, but it also comes up here. This is in the time of the Judges. Interesting little thing. Now there's more to it. The Goel Kinsman Dreamer course, the kinsman had to, be a, he had to be a kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He has to be willing to perform. Those are two different things. And he has to be, assume all the obligations. And Jesus Christ is our kinsman. He became man and dwelt among us. He has to be able to perform. He could perform because he's sinless on our behalf. He had to be willing, and he was. He loved us that much. And he had to assume all of our obligations, which he did. So that's why this thing is fitting the model here. Boaz is the Lord of the harvest. He's the kinsman redeemer. What's Naomi? She's Israel. Because of his redemption, Israel's returned to the land, to her land. And Ruth, of course, is the Gentile bride. You wonder, how can Boaz, a good, self-respecting Israeli leader, take on a Gentile bride? You have to know who Boaz's mother was. His mother was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. See, what the law could not do, grace can. Some other observations. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. Now that's kind of interesting. Think that through. What the law could not do, grace did. It was illegal to marry a Moabite. But uh, our kinsman redeemer did. And Ruth does not replace Naomi. They have different destinies. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi, but Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. Think that one through. And no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to wait for her move. Jesus is waiting for your move. Do you receive him? Do you accept him? So that he can be your kinsman redeemer? It's interesting that Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. The law required the, the estranged girl to confront the nearer kinsman. No, Boaz did it for her, and he does it for us. He makes intercession for us. It's interesting how much the model fits, and it's also interesting how much the model is twisted to fit the real reality we have. Some final remarks. The book of Ruth turns out to always be read at the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot. How interesting. The Feast of Shavuot was the birth of the church, and the book of Ruth, in a sense, anticipates the church. And you can't really understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 5, where the Lamb takes the title deed of the earth and takes possession of that which he purchased, unless you understand these things in the book of Ruth. You and I are beneficiaries of a love story.
that was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Book of Ruth profiles that for us. Panorama of history. Next time we're going to get into David and the monarchy. The monarchy will be 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We're going to conclude the reign of Saul and the Davidic dynasty, David, Solomon, the temple. That's our task for hour number seven. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Judges, dismal story, but all of them full of lessons in terms of understanding God's total plan, also lessons for us personally. The failures are lessons of failure, and we need to understand that. And what the remedies for failure are, we need to understand that. We are in a warfare, just like Joshua was. Spiritual warfare. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about. So the, the very, very pregnant period that we've gone through here. But there's no little book that'll charm you more than if you dig into the book of Ruth. Every I've taught it probably a hundred times. And every time I go through it, I see another insight. It's inexhaustible. So is the Gospel of John that have that very uh, conspicuous characteristic. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. We're we stand in awe of your word and the extremes you've gone to that we might have your illumination. We thank you, Father, for these little treasures you've hidden around every corner. But we do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate all of this to put it in perspective for our lives, that we might understand what it is you would have of us in the days that remain. We do pray, Father, that you would oh, just reignite in each of us a new passion, a new hunger for your word, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that we might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities before us. We do pray, Father, that you just open our hearts and lives to your word as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.